Welcome to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy, and you can find our work at hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Martin Smith. Martin is a correspondent and filmmaker who has produced dozens of nationally broadcast documentaries for CBS, ABC, and Frontline PBS. His films have covered a breadth of topics and include many dedicated to the Middle East, including the rise of Al-Qaeda, the war in Iraq, the rise of ISIS, and the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. His latest film is titled The Jihadist and appeared earlier this month on Frontline. The Jihadist focuses on the jihadi leader Abu Muhammad al-Jawlani, i.e. The Jihadist, a man formerly affiliated with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State of Iraq, the predecessor of ISIS, but who has since sought to distance himself from transnational jihadism. Jaulani became famous in 2012 as the leader of the group Jebhat al-Nusra, one of the most powerful militant groups in the early period of the Syrian civil war. In 2013, Jebhat al-Nusra found itself in conflict with Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's ISIS, which sought to dissolve Jebhat al-Nusra, and in response, Jaulani proclaimed his allegiance to the leader of al-Qaeda, making his group a formal al-Qaeda affiliate. Several years later, in 2016-2017, Jaulani changed course, announcing that he was breaking ties with al-Qaeda and rebranding his group as Hayat Tahrir Hashem, HTS. Today, HTS controls the northwestern Syrian province of Idlib, which is home to more than 3 million Syrians, most of them displaced from other areas of the country. In February, Martin traveled to Idlib and became the first Western journalist to conduct an interview with Jaulani. Among other things, they discussed Jaulani's evolution and his desire for better relations with the West, including having the terrorist designations lifted. HTS remains a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, and Jaulani a specially designated global terrorist with a $10 million bounty on his head, though in reality the United States has ceased to target them. The following is my conversation with Martin. Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss the film. Cool. Good to be with you. Thank you. I should say uh, at the outset that I really did enjoy the film. I found it to be very balanced, uh, very informative. It certainly was not in the business of whitewashing Jaulani and his past or his organization. Uh, it doesn't make light of his, his past involvement in, in terrorism, and you really hold him uh, to the fire in, in that regard. So I encourage everyone to, to watch the documentary. It's available on pbs.org slash frontline and on YouTube. Uh, my first question uh, is pretty simple. I'm just very curious about the origins of the film. Uh, how did the documentary come about? What inspired you to want to do a film about uh, Jaulani and HTS? I think there's a lot of people who've wanted to get to Jaulani over the years. Um, you know, it's partly um, being in the right place at the right time and circumstance. I've covered Syria for some time and uh, have contacts uh, with people who have contact with Jalani. Um, and it's, you know, I've been aware, as most journalists covering Syria, uh, that Jalani is attempting to go through some kind of transformation or at least to convince people that he, he has uh, dropped his ties with uh, international terrorism. Um, so it really came about um, in December that I began uh, conversations about whether or not I could come in and do an interview. And I think the people around Jelani um, are interested in this happening or were interested in this happening. Um, 
I don't know how they feel now. I haven't heard from them since the documentary aired, but uh, I will. Uh, I have, I have, uh, you know, word out to, to get back to them. Yes, I, I am curious about the uh, the HTS reception to the film, but yeah, well, I am curious yeah. too. I mean, I think that they should be, you know, they got some airtime, and a lot of people who you know who have criticized me for doing this are of the belief that any airtime given to somebody like Jelani is a bad idea. I, as a journalist, I see my job as talking to pretty much anybody and everybody that will give me um, an interview. So he he was maybe not the most, uh, you know, e- eager person to give the interview, but he decided to do it um, after about a month of uh, a little more of negotiating back and forth. And so... He decided, as he said, um, to sit down. Um, I, I can't say for sure uh, how much he wanted to do this or didn't want to do it. I did speak to him quite a bit before we uh, did the interview, um, and mm-hmm. he was oddly a bit ambivalent about what he had to say, and, and, and uh, it, it was pretty interesting. But anyway, through intermediaries, I was able to make contact and get an agreement to sit down. The fact is that when I went over there uh, in early, um, it was late January, early February, he still hadn't agreed to give an interview. It still required being on the ground and talking a bit before he was willing to sit before the cameras. That's interesting. Because in the documentary, you're you're, uh, pictured uh, in the, I think the passenger seat of a car ostensibly belonging to Joe Lenny, and he's driving you around Idlib um, as if he's an everyday Joe, um, it, it seemed like he was trying to be very chummy. Yeah, well, he, he's been doing this for some time. He hasn't done it in the presence of, uh, of a camera uh, from uh, the United States, mm-hmm. uh, but he's been trying to present that image. I will say that when we went down into the market, he very much wanted to go uh, into downtown Italy and walk around the market. I had suggested this. Um, his guards advised him against it. He was extremely nervous. Um, it's hard to know what to make of it. Look, if any any leader in any country goes into uh, public, they're going to have a lot of heavy protection. Uh, it's just the right. way the world works. But I think that they were, you know, there are um, ISIS cells, Al Qaeda cells still operating in the area. So, you know, that was probably the most nervous uh, I was during the during the trip. Fascinating. Could you tell us a little bit more what what HTS controlled Idlib is like in terms of the way it's policed and taxed or anything like that? You know, as I said in the documentary, one has to be pretty sober about this. And so I saw what he wanted me to see and and I heard what he wanted me to hear. I say that in the open of the documentary. Right. Um, You know, it's it's one of these really hard scrabble places with so many buildings having been bombed by the regime or the Russians. Um, life is tenuous. Um, there's been internal battles between him and his fellow jihadis. So there's just a lot of destruction everywhere you turn. Uh, on the other hand, there is something like uh, ordinary life going on in markets and, um, and whatnot. As far as who's policing it, it's, it's very hard. You know, he has what he calls the salvation government. Now, this was formed by a group of, of uh, Syrians to administer the territory, he sees himself as a military leader. He doesn't see himself as capable uh, 
at least he says, to or want to pick up the trash and run the schools and whatnot. And he claims that those people are running the courts and they're running uh, local police forces. Um, he's still the big, big man there. But he, he's, he tries, you know, to put distance between himself and the court system, the prison system. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know how to interpret that. Exactly. Yeah, I, I now remember in his previous appearances and in previous uh, photographs of him, he appears in military fatigues. So he, ha- he does try to put off that image where he has in the past of being a military commander. Um, but he's also, uh, I mean, in his interview with you, he's wearing a suit and his, his hair is gelled up. He looks um, quite a lot like uh, ordinary um, well-to-do Syrian. Um, yeah. I spent some time in Syria and that's a fairly common look. Um, so he's... Yeah, uh, he, he, he um, you know, I didn't put him up to what he was going to wear. Uh, I put on a jacket reluctantly because I was really cold. It was a very cold place where we did the interview. Um, but he, uh, that, that's what he decided to wear. He's clearly being pushed to alter the way he is perceived abroad because his interest is in people in the West to hear him and reconsider uh, whether or not he could be in some way, shape, or form, um, a reliable partner in whatever settlement takes place in the future over over Syria and how it's divided up. Yeah, I want to get uh, back to more of what, what he's angling for in, in a minute. But first, I want to get um, to some of the facts about Jaolani that, that arise in your interview. So some of the things that I noted here, his real name is Ahmed Ashara. Uh, he was born in 1982, actually in, in Saudi Arabia, which is sort of interesting. Uh, his family, his father, I think he had difficult uh, a relationship as, as a, as a Nasserist with the government. Uh, he grew up mostly in Damascus in a fairly secular middle-class area. Uh, he be- seems to become increasingly religious at around age 18. He's inspired by the Palestinian Intifada. He then travels to Iraq in 2003, and he joins what he calls the resistance to the U.S. occupation, becomes affiliated with Abu Musab Zarqawi's al-Qaeda in Iraq and is captured in 2006. He spends five years in prison, uh, including in Abu Ghraib and Camp Bukha. And when he gets out in 2011, he heads to Syria to form Jabhat al-Nusra with the support and blessing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who he had recently met with. Um, So that's a pretty unambiguous track record and pedigree uh, of a terrorist. Yeah, I do want to correct a little bit of what he claims in the Mm -hmm. interview. You've obviously read the full uh, 40-page transcript uh, that's posted online. And he says in there that he was arrested in 2006, went through several prisons, and spent most of that time, I think, three and a half years in Camp Buka. Camp Buka, however, um, he couldn't have gotten out of Camp Buka in 2011 because they closed it in 2009. Uh, he says he was moved over to Camp uh, Taji, which was run by uh, the Iraqis. And he said he was let out of there in 10 months. I think this idea that he was in prison for this whole period of time and then suddenly there was an uprising in Syria and he went off to Syria is a little bit protecting uh, himself from what he might have been up to in the interim between getting out of uh, prison and going off to Syria. So. You know, he told me uh, a couple of times that, that he was um, 
he got out of prison just a few days before the uprising in Syria. Well, it just doesn't square with some of the other facts that we know. And I've asked him again and again about it, but um, it's one place where I think he's dissembling. That's interesting. And it's it, it's probably in his interest to be dissembling in that regard, exactly. uh, particular, particularly if he had a closer uh, relationship with Baghdadi and the the what was then the Islamic State of Iraq uh, leadership um, at the time. Um, I'm curious wh- when he talks about his his past, or when you brought up his past uh, involvement in terrorism. We can not that it's necessarily all in the past, uh, but the worst of it, you could probably say, is. Um, how did you find his answers to be? Did they did they seem genuine to you? He, I noticed that he was downplaying, you know, everything from his support from 9-11 to his support for Zarqawi, all of that seemed to be kind of not that big a deal to him. Yeah, well, if you want to sell yourself to the West, um, particularly to America that went through the 9-11 attacks and all the subsequent attacks in Europe, I mean, you do have to distance yourself from the killing of, of civilians. Um, he worked for Zarqawi. He admits that that was um, who he was working for in Iraq. And it's very hard, as I say in the film, uh, to believe that he wasn't in some way uh, complicit in attacks on civilians. However, um, it, there's a matter of degrees. Um, the primary uh, targets of Zarqawi and later Baghdadi, many of their targets uh, either were purely on civilians in a marketplace to terrorize people or on a, on a military target where they knew they were going to kill civilians. He, he, by most every account that I came across from people who really have studied him, said that he was less um, interested in killing civilians, that he did, in fact, try to avoid it. And the other thing about him that's important to note is that there's no record of him mounting attacks on European uh, targets or American targets. Um, he has stayed uh, focused on Bashar al-Assad and taking down the dictator. Um, so how did I find his answers? At, at times a bit um, uh, you know, dodgy. Um, other times he seemed that he was comfortable and was quite sincere. I mean, he's a smart guy, is clear. And he's, I think, aware of the world and how it sees him the outside. So he calibrates his answers accordingly. Yeah. What I noticed is that um, despite some of the, um, the the verbiage at the beginning of the documentary, he, he isn't actually um, claiming the two have be, to have undergone any kind of evolution or transformation. He's simply saying, I was always this way. I was always opposed to the killing of civilians. Um, so he's not really acknowledging uh, that he's changing. Is that right? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, way to put it, Cole. Um, he's downplaying his relationship with Al-Qaeda and with the Islamic State in Iraq. And these are not organizations that you join or, or associate with if you are opposed to the, or uneasy with the killing of civilians. That's right. And that's just, that's right. there's no other way to put it. Yeah, that's right. And I said, yeah. well, why didn't you just quit? He said, look, we asked the same questions you're asking. I mean, you know, I could have hammered him for longer on that, but it wasn't going to produce a different answer. So, yeah, he's trying to write his history in such a way that he can uh, both appeal to the West, but also 
he's got another audience that's listening to him, and that is fellow jihadis, people that came from many miles away to join his uh, Nusra Front in Syria, now HTS. Um, and many of the people around him are hardline um, jihadis, much more um, willing to go after Christians or Druze because they are uh, apostates. Um, he, he's, he's trying to appeal to the West, but he doesn't want to lose the support of his foot soldiers. And he's got 10,000 soldiers, some of them from other countries, who came there to fight a jihad as they understood it. Yeah, I think one thing that's important for, for people to understand is, is how controversial Jawalani is, not just in the West, but in, among jihadis. Um, I'm, I study in my, in my own work the, the views of jihadi ideologues, the views of um, real hardcore supporters of Al-Qaeda, and they consider Jailani to be a complete traitor to the cause. They describe him as someone who has, quote unquote, diluted uh, jihadi ideology um, and basically has, has reinvented himself to be you know, the poodle of the United States. Um, but uh, he, so he has to balance these constituencies. And um, what, what I'd like to ask about in this regard is, did he talk at all about the remaining Al-Qaeda uh, constituents uh, in in Idlib in Syria. I know there was some discussion about about ISIS, but um, he has recently and, and very much seriously gone after uh, Al Qaeda loyalists that used to be his close uh, associates and allies, and put some of them in prison. Um, I wonder if you talked to him at all about about that. I did. Um, I don't know what of it survived in the in the transcript, um, but I did talk to him about that. But here's what's curious. And I was totally surprised by this in a way, is that when I hit that subject, it was in the second session that we did um, in mid-February. He really wanted, he didn't want to talk about it. And I guess he doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, I think clearly he doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want to have to explain why he decided uh, to go after and kill fellow jihadis. Um, he talks a lot about being loyal to the cause. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he doesn't, therefore doesn't want to be seen as somebody who's uh, going after the remaining Al-Qaeda. It's, they have a group now called Haras al-Din that's split off from uh, HTS. Uh, the Free Syrian Army, the CIA-supported uh, Free Syrian Army went after them. Arl Sham, there are a bunch of groups, and I asked him about all of this, and he just didn't want to um, go there. And he asked if he could take a break and pray in the middle of the interview and uh, we didn't pick up on it again. So that's an area that I think uh, I'd love to talk to him about it some more. And that's, that's very interesting that he, he doesn't want to talk about it. They also, the HTS media doesn't want to want to cover it very much. Um, but it's, you'd think if you're, if you're in the business of trying to court the West of trying to appeal to the good graces of the United States, that you would want to emphasize, look, I've gone after Al-Qaeda, they're in prisons, um, but he's clearly not there. Well, he wants me to say that, I think. I, he wants reporters okay. that cover him to say that. Uh, and it's true that he has gone after these groups. And, and many people in Idlib who don't even like uh, Jelani are happy that a lot of these guys have been killed because they were living in the midst of a, of a small war inside Idlib that had nothing to do with going after Assad. It had to do with all this infighting between groups. And so they're happy that some of that violence has been quelled. Uh, but yeah, he, um, 
he didn't, he, I thought it was odd. I thought he would go on at some length about finding them, putting them in jail. Um, you know, he claims not to even have jails. Um, that was, because yeah, they belong to the Salvation Government. Yeah, I mean, anything that he doesn't want to talk about belongs to the Salvation Government, I guess. Uh, he's, um, look, I think that, that he is, um, you know, to his credit, I think he, there is a difference between Jelani and Baghdadi and Jelani and uh, Zarqawi um, and, and Zawahri, if he's still alive. Uh, there is a difference, and he's trying to nail down that difference and be seen as uh, a player in the future of Assyria. If it ever comes to you know something like the Dayton Accords, where people sit down and hash out what the future of Syria is going to look like, he wants a piece of that pie. And that, do you think? Uh, well, there's an interesting moment in the document. I think it's at the very beginning of the interview. Uh, where you ask him, why now? Why are you sitting down with a Western journalist at this moment? And he says, oh, you know, you asked me to do the interview. And I said, sure. Um, so <laughs> did you think he was dissembling there? Yes. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. On the other, yes, I did. I do think he was dissembling there. Uh, on the other hand, I think he was pushed to do the interview by aides around him. And I think the Turks who provide protection for him also uh, and I, I can't say this with 100% certainty, but it, it struck me that um, clearly this would not have happened if it wasn't for their support. Um, I had to get there after all, not, not anybody can just walk into um, Idlib. And so- So you, you obviously went through Turkey then? You gotta go through Turkey. There's no other way to get there. I mean, you can go through Assad's territory, but I don't think that's gonna- Good know. luck, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and it just uh, a reminder to those listening that in G in standard jihadi ideology, Turkey is considered not an Islamist uh, group or a country, but rather um, a, a completely secular uh, government that is an apostate kind of government. And so Jaulani, by virtue of accepting the, the military support, um, however, kind of ambiguous it is uh, of, of Turkey. He's also courting a lot of controversy. Yeah, he is. I mean, th there was a, uh, an episode in 2000, I don't know, 12 or, or early in 13, I'm not sure what the date was, where Baghdadi asked him to go up to um, Istanbul and bomb and plant bombs at some uh, free Syrian army meetings. Um, and even then, Jelani said, no, I'm not going to do that. Turkey is important to us, their support, and I'm not going to alienate them. And Baghdadi was, of course, furious that he was unwilling to go do that. I mean, Jelani has maintained that he's never supported an attack um, by his group on an external actor. In other words, no external jihad. Um, and, you know, to his credit, there's not much... Um, that we can report about with certainty that he has engaged in that kind of activity. So there's a difference between him. And, and, and I think that's important to recognize at the same time, recognizing that he is a salesman, uh, as every politician is um, that I've ever interviewed, uh, they want something. Right. And he's seems to be a quite adept politician um, just by virtue of the fact that he's still alive um, and in control of quite a bit of, of territory. I think so. I think he's, He's, um, it's got to be a lonely job 
You know, I don't think that the guys that surround him are the are necessarily all the brightest lights. And uh, he's sitting there uh, holding this all together, being attacked still by ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda cells. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it takes a lot of um, chutzpah and maneuvering for him to remain in charge. I mean, I, if I woke up tomorrow and heard that he was killed, I would not be surprised. He has a lot of enemies. He certainly does. Did you have any other uh, impressions about Jaolani um, that you could share that, you know, things that he's, what he's like, um, just in the car or things like that? Yeah, no, I'll tell you, um, he, he was, uh, I told him early on, I said, look, I, I, I want to do this interview and I hope you agree to it, but I, I really don't want to get lectured about this, that, and the other thing. I've seen the interviews that Bin Laden gave to Peter Arnett or others uh, early on before 9-11. And there was a sort of formality to them, a kind of a lecturing um, uh, quality. Right. Those interviews that I found impenetrable and not interesting. And I said, I want to have a conversation with you. He seemed to understand that, which I was surprised by. Um, I mean, I hoped he would understand that, and he did. And, and so I think I, I'd like to know what he reads and what his news sources are. I mean, now you can be a, a leader uh, of a militant jihadi group and have access to the internet and you can wake up and read all sorts of sources. He seems mm-hmm. to be, he, he's, he's read in on the West and he seemed to have an understanding of how things worked. Uh, some of the people around him said, look, we want you to do an interview and air the interview. I said, that's not going to happen. First of all, nobody knows who you are, who this guy is, and they're not going to sit there and listen to him for uh, even 20 minutes. Um, I have to provide context. You have very, I said to him, I said, you have a very interesting history. And before we talk about the present, we have to look at your past because people can understand you if we put you in the context of things that are familiar to them, like the war in Iraq, and ISIS, and Baghdadi, and uh, all of that. And he seemed to understand that in a way that I think the people around him didn't so one of the things he's clearly angling for is to have his uh, this these terrorist designations lifted against himself and his his organization HTS. Uh, you talk to some foreign policy professionals in the documentary. No one seems interested uh, in 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 helping Jaudani in that regard. Um, there are some interesting things that I read actually, though, in the in the in the full. Uh, transcript of of the interview that you did with James Jeffrey. He was the former ambassador to to Turkey and Iraq. And under under Trump, he was, I think, the special envoy for Syrian engagement. He had a lot of, of dealings with um, with the Tur- with 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 Jalani's group, though not not direct. Um, and he did make very clear that this kind of designation is not an objective designation. It's it's political. Um, that there's a two kind of um, two-stage process to designation, one that begins with you have to meet some objective criteria uh, for for the meaning of terrorism. That's done by the intelligence community. And then secondly, it has to be done by the State Department, which has to have some political interest in, in designating them as a terrorist group. Um, and you could certainly make the case that the United States, um, that we uh, we have engaged with, with actors that act commit terrorism. I think that the or that sponsor terrorism, the the Iranian regime, you could argue, I think quite quite easily uh, sponsors much more uh, terrorism than Jaolani's group, but we're willing to engage them. Um, the the Afghan Taliban is another example. 
Um, so what do you think makes um, in your, what did you learn from, from talking to people and from being there? What makes uh, this issue so sticky for people? Why and touchy? Why, why are they not willing to go there when it comes to, to lifting? I, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, he's a former Al-Qaeda affiliate. Uh, he had correspondence with Zawadri. He had a relationship and, and financial support from uh, Baghdadi. He's just, his, his past is just too sticky. And so I think he knows that lifting that terrorist designation is probably not going to happen, but he wants to, in spite of that, uh, establish a little bit more contact and appeal to the American people through putting out this documentary, and perhaps we'll see more now. So, so he wants people to give him another look, is the way I put it in the film. Um, and, you know, as, as Rania Abazade, the reporter who has written perhaps the, the best book covering Idlib and, and him, and he said, well, whatever choice does he have? Um, you know, he can stick to, to, um, to Al-Qaeda, but it's not going to get him anywhere. And he wants to be a player. So, but nobody's going to, once you're a terrorist, it's very hard. You're kind of ratcheted in. I mean, I think the Houthis were terrorists for a while, for a few weeks, and then they yeah. lifted that, but nobody knows anything about that. This guy, if you go to That's, Africa, I mean, they were just lobbing, uh, they, they lobbed rockets at uh, civilian areas in Saudi Arabia, and, but we, we removed them because of a political interest in engaging the Iran. That's right. Um, <laughs> so it's really, um, I guess the way I look at it, at it is, what does HDS have to offer the United States? I and, I asked him that the first time we sat down, and it was a, there was a long silence. He doesn't really have much that he can offer. He has Al-Qaeda members, uh, leaders, um, but that doesn't seem like uh, that's doable. Well, he says, look, we're, we're on the same side. I kill ISIS. I kill Al-Qaeda. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to kill Assad. He says, we're, on the, we're sort of on the same side here, so why are you seeing me as a terrorist? And he brings up the Taliban. He says, Taliban has been an American enemy for 20 years or so, and now you're sitting down. He mentions uh, the Irish Republican Army. He mentions the FARC in Colombia, um, and you mentioned Iran. I mean, he, he, uh, he just wants um, another look, as they say. But, you know, once you're in there as an al-Qaeda uh, commander, you're not, you know, it, it's hard for anybody to, to be willing to go to Capitol Hill or to the, anywhere in Washington and say, I think we should, you know, we should, uh, give this guy some flowers. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. Um, last question here. I'm curious if, how the experience in Idlib has, has affected, uh, or what impact it's had on your, your thinking about, um, about jihadism and Islamism, a subject which is some, a subject you've covered for more than 25 years. Um, what did you learn about, about the movement and, uh, and about HTS from being there? Well, I don't know. This is going to sound a little silly, perhaps. But, I mean, people are people, and they do things for reasons. Um, they're not, um, you know, two-dimensional or one-dimensional uh, figures of, of unmitigated evil. They see themselves as having causes. They've reasoned it uh, and convinced themselves that they're standing on the right side of history. Uh, so I've covered um, 
you know, the area, as you say, for a long time, and I've always recognized that people that are arrayed against the United States are not necessarily, I mean, some are, I mean, like Baghdadi, he, he was a wholesale killer. It's really hard to, to say anything in support of that guy. But a lot of people are joining this um, cause. I mean, he, he puts it like this. He says, you know, um, yeah, we were all kind of it. What you have to ask yourself is why so many people joined al Qaeda. And I think, you know, as he says, that's the question. Um, so did I learn anything from him? Only that I hadn't had the opportunity to sit down with the jihadi leader, but nothing. You know, I've sat down with the leaders of the Iraqi um, Shia militia. Um, I've met uh, criminals of various stripes around the world. People do things for reasons, whether it's for money or for a cause or whatever. And so understanding them is important to me. And I certainly reject the idea that I was somehow in there to be his representative uh, and help him out. Now, th that's what that's what some people I knew. I knew going in that people would say that. But that comes with uh, a risk you take on. Well, it's interesting that, you know, you've received criticism uh, from maybe some political circles and uh, the U.S. and the West, but Jalani's also received a lot of criticism in, in jihadi circles um, for sitting down with a, you know, um, an infidel kafir. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, th those who support uh, Jalani or come to his defense in this regard like to cite what you said before that uh, Osama bin Laden used to give interviews. Um, they, they, there's a, actually this is a whole interesting uh, series of debates that went back uh, and forth online about this, but. Um, we can talk about that some other time. Uh, Martin Smith, thank you very much for coming on the Caravan Podcast. Martin is on Twitter at, at MartinSmithDocs. And once again, you can find his latest documentary for PBS Frontline, The Jihadist, on pbs.org slash frontline and on YouTube. My colleague Russell Berman will be back in about two weeks for the next episode of the Caravan Podcast. Cool. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.